Well, good morning, church. Last Sunday, we finished up uh, 1 Thessalonians, and today we're going to be entering into 2 Thessalonians, continuing in uh, this series, these, these letters that Paul wrote to the church at, at Thessalonica 2,000 years ago, and the benefit that they have for us in, in the day in which we live. As we jump into 2 Thessalonians this morning, uh, we're going to be talking today about the subject of suffering, primarily. And I don't know what kind of suffering you may be experiencing right now. This may be the best of times for you and not a lot of suffering going on. Praise the Lord. But uh, as the old Christian comedian Mark Lowry used to say, his favorite verse was, this too shall pass. So if you're in the best of times, praise the Lord. But also we understand from the scriptures as we're going to see today and been reminded in this song that, that Grant just introduced to us. Even the worst of times, even when streams of trouble seem never ceasing, it calls us as the people of God to songs of loudest praise. We praise God in the good times and in the bad because we know that God is working just as much in the good times as he is in the bad times. He is doing something in our suffering. And we're going to talk about what that is, at least in part today, as we jump into this text, I want to talk to you today about suffering as what I would call a peculiar proof, because that's what verse 5 is going to lay out for us in our text today. Suffering is the peculiar proof of something that God is doing that we may not be aware of and certainly probably are not most of the time. Here's our theme for today. It's that our position with God in Christ brings about the product of Christ in us, which serves as the proof proof of our worthiness for his kingdom. Now, that's a very convoluted sentence, and I'm hoping to break that down for us today. But it's a summary of what we're going to look at in these first five verses, that our position with God in Christ brings about the product of Christ in us, which serves as the proof of our worthiness for his kingdom. So let's break this down. First point today, let's talk about our position in Christ. As we look at these first two verses, we might just be tempted to just skip over them just kind of as an introductory greeting that doesn't really have a lot of merit. We just kind of run on to uh, the bulk of the body of this text. And yet, even in his greeting, the Apostle Paul wants us to see the glory of the gospel. This was no ordinary greeting. It is rich with theological meaning and is directing us back to who we are as the people of God. And so he writes, Paul, Sylvanus and Timothy, he, Paul and his co-workers, to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, to those who have literally been called out of their sin and into the marvelous light of the glory of God in this gospel, that this church is in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our position. Dozens and dozens of times through Paul's letters, he summarizes the Christian life with these two simple words. The Christian life is in Christ. As you see, Paul's writings, it's, it's everywhere in his writings, this idea of us being in 
Christ. And so as he greets the churches in these letters, he wants to remind them from the very beginning of their position. You are no longer believers in the world. You are primarily in Christ. See, if we don't start at that place, none of the rest of what we're going to talk about this morning is going to make any sense. This morning, if you do not find yourself in Christ, much of what I will say to you will sound foreign and strange and almost ridiculous, if not completely so. But because we are in Christ, it changes everything. When we were in the world, suffering seemed meaningless. Now suffering has tremendous purpose. As we shall see. What is our position in Christ? Well, first of all, we have been saved by God's grace in Christ. He says to them these two words, grace to you and peace. The same way he began 1 Thessalonians. The same way that Paul begins nearly all of his letters with this commendation to them of grace and peace. To be reminded that they were saved by God's grace in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us that God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Church, it is by grace you have been saved. We can never hear that enough. Because our greatest temptation in the flesh is to run back to a works-based mentality where I think that I've got to do something in order to gain my salvation and my standing with God. And what Paul is reminding them, even in this greeting, is that your standing, your position in Christ was not secured by your works. They were secured by the works of Christ. It's by grace We have been saved, but our position in Christ is also one of peace, that we have peace with God through Christ. And this is going to help us as we begin to address the subject of suffering. It's going to help us to understand that we now in this moment, if you belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, that you right now possess peace with God. You are not at enmity with God anymore, though we once were. In our rebellion, in our sin, we were at enmity with God. We were in rebellion against him. And yet God in his grace did for us what we could never do for ourselves when he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins, to pay the full pardon for us, to pay for our full and and unmerited pardon that we might experience his grace and know his peace. Romans 5 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, notice that's a done deal. We have been justified by faith. So if you find yourself tempted towards self justification by your own works, understand that work's already been done. You are wasting your time. You have been justified. We, followers of Jesus, we have been justified by faith and therefore we have peace with god we have shalom we have wholeness we have a renewed and rightened relationship with god through our lord jesus christ this and much more is what it means for us to be in christ 
I think Paul defines the idea of being in Christ even better in Colossians chapter 3. When he encourages the church at Colossae, he says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Remember, ultimately, we are no longer in the world. We are in Christ. So set your mind on things above for Why? Because you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is the primary reality for the believer. That our lives are now hidden with Christ in God. But that which is hidden will one day appear. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And that which is hidden now, which we can only see with eyes of faith, we can only catch glimpses of what God is doing in preparing us for that moment when he unveils his glory, that that which is hidden now will one day be unhidden, will be unveiled to all the world, and we will be a demonstration of God's glory among the nations. Church, I believe it would change our lives radically if we could begin to live in light of the fact that our true life, our eternal life, our real life is hidden with Christ and God and all that's happening in this life is passing away. The things of earth will one day grow strangely dim. What may seem strangely dim to us now, this true spiritual life will one day be on full display. And what seems as on full display now will one day grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's all about perspective. We'll talk more about that before we finish today. So we need to be reminded, first of all, as we consider the subject of suffering of our position in Christ, where is our real life? But we also need to be reminded that because of our position in Christ, that he is producing something in us. Because we are in him, he is doing something in us. And what is that? Well, look at verses 3 and 4. Let's talk about what Christ is producing in us. In 1 Thessalonians, John Stott writes, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul remembered gratefully that their faith, love, and hope were productive. You'll remember he talked about their work of faith and their labor of love and their steadfastness of hope in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. But here, however, he emphasizes rather that these qualities are not just productive, they're progressive. They're growing and increasing as he had prayed for them in the book of 1 Thessalonians. So what are these qualities of faith, hope, and love? Well, first of all, he talks about the fact that they have a looking back faith that's growing like a tree. Notice the word he uses there. He says, we ought always to give thanks to you, God, to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. That word growing there is, is, a, is a word that references organic growth like that of a tree or of a, of a child. It is a, it is a growing up kind of growth. And he's saying that's what's happening with your growth. It's, it's growing up. It's, it's growing in abundance like a tree and it's producing the fruit of righteousness in your life. But again, this is a looking back faith. It's looking back to the cross. 
It's a Hebrews 12 kind of faith. It's looking back to the author and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorned its shame and is now seated at the right hand of God interceding for us. So we are looking back to the finished work of Christ by faith so that we might be enabled to live in the present moment. We have a looking back faith that's growing as a tree. As Warren Wiersbe so famously said, a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. So how do I know if I have a real, living, and vibrant faith? Part of that's going to be connected to our response to suffering, as we're going to see. But for now, he commends them for a looking back faith that's growing like a tree. It reminds me of Psalm 1. My favorite psalm says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight, his joy is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree. It's the same kind of picture here. He is like a tree, not static, but growing. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which bears its fruit in season. His leaf does not wither, nor all that he does, he prospers. By the hand of God, he prospers. By the hand of God, he grows. And that's what our faith should look like. Now, so often we wrongly think about our faith like a possession, as something that I have, rather than like a relationship, as something that I'm growing in. We, we think of faith as something like uh, like some kind of a, a card that's stuck in my back pocket that I once trusted in Jesus and now I get, out, I get my get-out-of-hell-free card, kind of like we might have a, a vaccination card today to get us into a restaurant in the coming days. Okay, so that's that's the threat on the horizon, it seems. So we're, we're talking about though this as a static possession. What we need to recognize is the faith that we're being commended in is not a possession, it's a relationship, which implies growth. And change, just like that tree. And even Jesus said, the tree tree that does not bear fruit, that does not continue to grow, is only good for being cut down and thrown into the fire. We had to burn some dead trees on our property this last year. It's a lot of work. But better to cut them down and throw them and burn them in the fire than to allow them to fall on someone and cause great damage. And for many of us, That's what our faith, that's the measure of our faith that we need to see. Because if we have that kind of dead faith that's only profession, that's only a possession, that's only a card that we carry and not a living relationship, then the danger is that we fall and bring great destruction. And we've seen it time and time again in the church in these days. We need this vibrant faith. Not only that, we need this increasing love. He says, not only do I commend your faith, but again there in verse 3, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Again, this word increasing here is a different Greek word. The, The word growing about their faith was like a tree. The word increasing here pictures that of a flood. So their looking around love was increasing like a torrent. And you know what water does, it gets into everything. If you've ever had your house flooded, we had some water problems in our basement up until this year when we had someone come in and, and fix some of that. 
But you know water gets into everything. It goes into every nook and cranny. It's, it's so difficult. It costs us a great deal to keep the water out of our house. And he's saying, that's the way that your love should be, that it's like a flood. It's going everywhere. But unlike a flood that's causing great destruction, instead, your love should be causing great delight. Your love should be going out into all, not just in the church, but to everyone as he commended them in First Thessalonians, but that our love would be increasing and growing and flooding those around us. He prayed this for them. First Thessalonians 3.12. He prayed, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Believers, what a good reminder that our love, our training ground for love is primarily within the church. But this is the training ground where which we then learn to love those outside of the church. It's far too often we find ourselves as a people who are not known for our love. We're known for our politics. We're known for our opinions. We're known for our Facebook posts, most of which are not very loving. We're known for all kinds of things, but Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples, that you will know you are my followers by what? By your love for one another. This is evidence that we are found in him. So he commends them for their looking back faith that was growing like a tree. He commends them for their looking around love that was increasing as a torrent and flooding the areas around them. But he also encourages them in hope. In a looking forward hope that's enduring in trials. Now some folks have have commented that Paul actually doesn't use the word hope in verse 4, we'll just read it again. He says, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. Some people said, well, well, he left out hope there, so there must have been a problem with their hope. And I don't think that's the point. When he refer- references steadfastness there, he's tying it back to what he had commended in First Thessalonians 1 when he had talked about their steadfastness of hope, their persevering in hope. That they were looking forward to the coming of Christ and that was enabling them to endure the trials they were currently experiencing. This is huge. One of the greatest issues in the church today, I believe, is that we have lost a sense of the imminent return of Christ. And therefore, our trials, our sufferings, our persecutions, our problems become so big in our view. Because we have forgotten that our king is coming back for us, we get downtrodden, we get discouraged, we get depressed by the difficulties that rise up in our lives. But if we have this looking forward hope, we're able to endure the trials. Hebrews 6, it's a beautiful reminder, we have this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What is this? It's a hope. 
a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, into the most holy of holies, into the very presence of God, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, our high priest interceding for us. He is the source and center of our hope, and he is coming back for us. And in the meantime, he's praying for us. And so in the midst of our sufferings, rather than getting downtrodden and depressed and discouraged, we can instead find an otherworldly delight in the knowledge that he is doing something through our sufferings that he could not accomplish in any other way. You say, well, pastor, what in the world could he be doing in my suffering? Look at verse five. Verse 5 is so rich and has often been misunderstood. And I'm going to seek to bring us some good and, and hopefully some encouraging understanding today of this verse. But he says, after what he's just written, this is evidence. Evidence of what? This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That you, church, you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Now there's a lot here, and I want to try my best to break this down for us because there's some huge truths that will change the way that we encounter the sufferings of the present day. He's saying there is some proof in our sufferings. There's some proof of something that God is doing in our sufferings that he could not accomplish in any other way because if he could accomplish it in any other way, he probably would do the other way. He's doing something in our sufferings, in our trials, in our persecutions, in our problems. He's doing something in this and we don't want to miss it. But I think Tim Keller does a good job of helping us to see that when we experience suffering, uh, there's oftentimes three sources that, that it may come from, three reasons why we may be enduring a particular suffering. He writes, some suffering is given in order to chastise and correct a person for wrongful patterns of life. Think about Jonah. Jonah ends up in the belly of the well because he was running away in disobedience from the Lord. That's the, that's the one kind. And oftentimes we think that's the only kind. We think if we're suffering, it must be because I've done something wrong. But there's more. Some suffering is given not to correct past wrongs, but to prevent future ones. Think about Joseph. He had done nothing wrong when his brothers sold him into slavery And he ends up eventually in prison and is left to languish there for many years until God elevated him to a place of prominence. And what did Joseph say to his brothers at the end of the book of Genesis? He said, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good, the saving of many lives. Joseph was saying to his brothers, we'd all be dead if you hadn't sold us into slavery. That doesn't mean that Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery was a good thing. That was a wicked thing. That was a sinful thing. That was a destructive thing. But God took that action and used it for the greater good of rescuing Joseph and his family. Only God can do that kind of work. But then Tim Keller reminds us 
Some suffering has no purpose other than this. To lead a person to love God more ardently, more passionately, more fervently for himself alone. Sometimes it's not about punishment for being out of line. Sometimes it's not about preventing future issues. Sometimes God uses our sufferings to draw us into a place of sweet communion with him that if we did not have that suffering, we would not cry out to our father. He's drawing us into a deeper love relationship. And so as we consider our suffering, 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes, so we do not lose heart. We don't grow weary or discouraged. We don't get depressed. And that doesn't mean that there aren't times of depression, but we don't allow ourselves to remain in that place because though our outer self is wasting away, though these bodies are failing us and the older we get, the more we are aware of that reality. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction. And I know those words can sound so cruel, depending on what you're dealing with right now. For him to say this light and momentary affliction, but you need to understand he is laying our sufferings beside the sufferings of Jesus Christ. He is laying our trials beside those that our Lord endured and saying in light of the cross and in light of eternity, what you are dealing with in this day is light and momentary because your Savior who died for you said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is what? It's light. Yes, there's still burden. Yes, there's still suffering. Yes, there's still heartache and pain and all that comes from a sin-broken world. But God is doing something. He is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. So let's think about this proof for a moment. Here's our tendency. Or at least this is your pastor's tendency. Our primary tendency is when suffering comes, we begin to ask the question, well, what did I do to deserve this? You see, we oftentimes fall back into this mentality that God is just waiting to drop the hammer on us. He's waiting for us to to step out of line in some way or another that he might bring upon us this judgment. And we even see it here in the text. When he says, this is evidence, evidence of what? Of the righteous judgment of God. And yet here's what we've forgotten, church. We have forgotten that judgment has two aspects. When we hear about God's judgment, we immediately think of God's condemning judgment. And many times the Bible speaks about that, and we're going to see it next week in graphic display in the next portion of this text, that there is a condemning judgment of God that will separate people from God for all eternity because they continued in rebellion against him rather than being clothed in his righteousness through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That is a real reality. 
But a lot of times, even as believers, we live as though God is just waiting to drop the hammer on us. And we forget that he has already dropped the hammer on Christ. We forget. We forget that the full punishment of our sins was put upon Christ. Sins past, present, and future. Believer, hear these words. The full punishment was put upon Christ so that he could cry out from the cross in his final words and say, it is finished. The debt is paid. But when we live in this debtor's mentality where we think that God is ever living to drop the hammer on us if we get out of line, we miss the fullness of the love of God, the God who demonstrated his great love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We must be reminded that the full punishment for our sins was put upon him One of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him, God made Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. He had no sin of his own. He took the fullness of our sins upon himself. As we looked at in 1 John this morning in Sunday school class, he became the propitiation for our sins. Full atonement has been made. There's no more punishment to be meted out for our sins he took it all and yet so many of us we live i know the temptation to live in this punishment mentality like we're waiting for god to drop the hammer and i want to say to you today as i'm preaching to my own self the hammer has already fallen on christ There is no more punishment for you. It's done. Not only that, here's the grace of God. Not only was the full punishment for our sins put upon him, the full righteousness of Christ was put upon us. So again, as we walk around expecting God to drop the hammer, we forget that we have been clothed in his righteousness. That judgment has already been passed upon us. And the verdict that has been declared is not guilty. That while there is the condemning judgment of God for those who continue in rebellion against Him and refuse repentance and faith, while while there is that condemning judgment, that there is also this saving judgment which was enacted at the cross. We forget... We need to be reminded that we have been clothed in the full righteousness of Christ. Why? The rest of 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us. So that in Him, in Christ, again that's the Christian life. In Him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. We become in Christ an eternal display of God's righteous judgment. In declaring redeemed sinners saved for all eternity, just as he will declare unredeemed sinners condemned for all eternity. 
And at the end, everyone will look at God's justice, both the condemned and the saved. And everyone will say, even if they don't like it, they will say, it is just, it is good, it is righteous. This God, he judges justly. And his justice will be made known. And so believers, whatever our sufferings are, I want to leave you with this truth today. It's so full of grace. I don't know what you're walking through in these days, but would you see these sufferings coming from the hand of your loving Father and that He is doing something that you can't begin to comprehend. He is enacting in you a glory that's yet to be revealed. And so what does this mean? It means, believers, that our sufferings are not primarily punitive. That's our mentality. We think God's waiting just to drop the hammer. Our sufferings are not primarily punitive. They are proof positive of his love for us. You say, Pastor, are you saying that this diagnosis I've received is evidence of God's love for me? That's exactly what I'm saying. I know that's hard. Are you saying, Pastor, that my shattered marriage is evidence of God's love for me? Are you saying, Pastor, that this grief that is so burdening my heart is evidence of God's love for me? I'm certainly saying he wants to use that to lead you to that realization. He wants you to understand that your sufferings are not in vain. That he is doing something so much greater than what we can comprehend. And yet, being given eyes of faith, we might see it. Let me leave you with a couple of things. John Stott. Such a great quote. He said, we are tempted. We are tempted to invade, to, to protest against God and what we perceive as a miscarriage of justice. How many times do we, why doesn't God do something, we ask? Why doesn't God just do something? We complain indignantly. And the answer is that he is doing something and he'll go on doing it. He is allowing his people to suffer in order to qualify them for a heavenly kingdom. He is allowing the wicked to triumph temporarily, but his just judgment will fall upon them in the end. We're going to see that next week. But for now, believers, hear this. In your suffering, he is qualifying you for heaven. Now hear me carefully. Your sufferings do not make you qualified for heaven. It's the blood of Jesus that does that. It's the sufferings of Jesus that does that. But then God comes along and he begins to use our sufferings to prove the validity of our redemption. To prove the power of his transforming love. He begins to form the image of Christ in us. Which is so bound up in the cross. 
We were saved by the sufferings of Christ. Why do we get the idea that then our sanctification, we, in our sanctification, we would then be absolved of suffering? No, he uses our sufferings to prepare us for his kingdom. And then one day, one day, what Paul is commending here is that one day, that all the peoples of the world will stand before God in that final judgment. And one day, everyone will look at the steadfast sufferings of God's people, their endurance and persecution. They're continuing to march forward by faith in the midst of unbelievably difficult trials. And everyone will look upon it and they will see this has been the righteous judgment of God. And he has proved these worthy. He has proved their worthiness. Not because they were worthy in of themselves. But because they were made worthy by his son and his sacrifice at the cross. So you may ask, Pastor, what do I do with all of this? You've thrown out a bunch of stuff here, but what, what do I actually do? First of all, consider your perspective. What is your perspective on your current sufferings? Are you living with the perspective of God just waiting to drop the hammer? Look to the cross. See, the hammer has already been dropped. The blood has already been spilled. The penalty has already been paid. The punishment has already been taken. So your suffering is not that. It must be something else. It must be the generous and gracious hand of your father. Preparing you to one day stand worthily. As a citizen of his kingdom. In such a way that no one will question. Oh, I know how we question. How could I ever be qualified for his kingdom? Through suffering. First, the suffering of his son. And then the suffering of our lives. That we come to this place. And here's our response. Philippians 1. Paul writes the suffering church at Philippi and he says... Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. Why? This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. But of your salvation. The righteous judgment of God displayed in our sufferings is a clear sign of the destruction that's coming to those who reject God's offer of grace in Christ. But it's also a clear sign of our salvation. And that's from God. It doesn't make it easy. It does make it immensely meaningful. For it has been granted to you, and guess who granted it? 
Guess who graced you in this way? Your loving Father has granted you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, believe in the one who suffered for you, but also that you should suffer for His sake. And so at the end of this, we must see that even our greatest sufferings are a gift from God. I know that's hard. I know that that sounds so strange and foreign to us. This is peculiar proof that's being given here. But with eyes of faith, would you see what God is displaying for you today? Would you look to the cross of your Savior and be reminded it was there that your punishment was taken? It was there that you were given opportunity to be clothed fully in His righteousness. And it was there that God began to qualify you for His kingdom. And now through every danger, toil, and snare, God is continuing that great work of sanctification. That one day you may stand before Him, and not only you, and not only me, but all of creation will understand completely that God has made worthy for His kingdom those who trusted in Christ. Who walk by faith and not by sight. Who love with great cost. And who have a steadfast hope. That looks to and longs for the coming of our King. Let's pray together. Father there is such gravity in these things today. I wonder if I could even begin to do justice to what you have set before us. We confess, Father, this is hard. But it is necessary. And just because it's hard doesn't mean that it's not good. And so I pray, Father, for those in this room right now who are in the midst of great suffering. I pray first and foremost that they would be given the grace of looking to Christ. Seeing his sufferings and knowing that they are not alone. And that the same God who accomplished our eternal salvation through the cross is doing something in the cross that they are currently bearing. We may not see it all. We may not know what it is. Father, you are doing 10,000 things in any given moment. We might be aware of one or two by your grace. And we pray, Father, strengthen our faith. Increase our love. Give us a steadfast hope. May we not grow weary in doing good, but cling to the promise of our God who is faithful. That you will surely do all you've promised. That you are trustworthy and true. That you are preparing us for your kingdom and you will do everything that is necessary to accomplish that to its fullest. 
we rest in you today. May this final song today be an anthem of hope for us. And Father, you promised that you who began a good work in us will complete it. You will use every tool at your disposal to prepare us for your eternal kingdom. So, Father, today we submit ourselves to your hand. In Jesus' name.